This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode 15. If you open it, will they come? Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creeder, Ben Reitzis, Dan Belton, John Hill, and Ben Jeffrey from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our thoughts on the gradual risk based reopenings in Europe and the U.S., what is needed for people to feel safe re-entering social settings once again, and what we expect for the economy. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. With most U.S. states now shut down anywhere from four to eight weeks, many are forming plans on how to best reopen while still trying to keep people safe. We now have several states loosening restrictions while maintaining social distancing and requiring face masks when in public. So today we discuss what we'll be tracking as we enter into this next phase and how this plays out for the economy and markets. In other words, if you open it, will they come? Yeah, Margaret, that seems to be the biggest debate in financial markets at this point. When we look at the recent bid in risk assets, for example, a lot of that seems to be predicated on a certain degree of optimism being priced in that the reopenings will be relatively successful. What I find fascinating is when I'm speaking with clients and other market professionals, there seems to be a pretty big dispersion in what it means to be successful in a reopening. To a large extent, a second wave of cases is a foregone conclusion. But is it bad enough to warrant another lockdown is an important question. I don't think it will be, but I do think that some more negative economic impact is being priced into investors' assumptions at this point. Thanks, Ian. I think you make a really great point. If we revisit the shutdown down goal. The initial goal was really buying some time to get prepared while, of course, flattening the curve. So the goal of stay-at-home orders, really, it's to get the capacity of the healthcare system to be able to deal with the pandemic, to allow time to get the PPE equipment that we really didn't have at the onset of this. And then also, of course, to start testing for viruses and potential cures or even simply treatments. So it seems like here we stand now one to two months into these quarantines, depending on location. Now we're starting the period of time where we begin to reopen. I think fortunately, we do have different countries in Europe starting well before us. And it'll be interesting to watch how successful they are with regard to containment of the virus. So whereas there was a lot of divergence and disparity between countries in Europe in terms of how they handled the upward sloping part of the curve going into this, there will probably be a lot more uniformity on the downward sloping part of the curve because governments will be watching the data and evidence from other cases in other countries. And everyone's goal is basically the same. Every European country has the same goal to prevent a second and third wave until there is a vaccine. So for example, 
Germany reopened some churches over this past weekend. So governments and epidemiologists will be studying that data over the next one to two weeks. I think the big test for European countries is going to come when schools reopen. Schools are reopening in Germany, and I'm using Germany in this instance because Germany is arguably one of the more successful countries in terms of handling the virus in Europe. Schools are reopening in Germany, but only in some German states and only for students of specific age regions. So it's a very cautious and gradual approach, even in a country like Germany, which has arguably had a very flat curve. Where I do think there is a significant degree of similarity is in the sense that all governments in Europe are pretty close to the point where they think the costs of keeping the economy shuttered for much longer are greater than the benefits of attempting to achieve a zero death rate or a zero mortality rate. As sad as that sounds, I think that's pretty much where we are. So what to look at going forward? I think the sequencing of relaxations and easing of restrictions is going to be different on a country-by-country basis in Europe, but countries are pretty much moving into the same phase, which is the test, track, and trace phase. Many countries will have mobile phone apps for this. Some are doing it on a centralized basis, and some are doing it on a non-centralized basis, but effectively the goal is the same, to try and prevent a second or a third peak, gradually relax controls for the least vulnerable in society, limit the economic damage, and isolate new hotspots. Stephen, I totally agree. And the trajectory of Europe's success in sort of coming out of this first wave, I think will be very indicative of what's to come in the US. After the pandemic initially broke out, domestically, we did see some price action around contagion, infection, death stats in Italy, Germany, and France. So to me, the price reaction in the US of Europe's initial attempt to reopen and get past this first wave of infections will be very telling. Now, as Ian said earlier, the risk of a second wave is almost a foregone conclusion. But the fact that the world is now moving past the first peak means that price reactions in credit, rates, FX, two news coming out of Europe and some of the Western countries that have served as sort of the vanguard of the pandemic will be very interesting in the coming weeks and probably coming months. So Stephen brought up something uh, interesting with Europe and Germany reopening schools. And we shouldn't forget for the U.S. how critical of a piece of the puzzle the school reopening is. And speaking for the parents, tough to imagine going back to work when you've got your kids at home and, and they're supposed to be homeschooling. So looking at the global situation and comparing it to the last financial crisis, when we came out of that crisis... We had a combination of Fed primarily, but Fed and ECB QE, plus massive infrastructure programs by China that pushed commodity prices up. And, you know, like Australia never had a recession actually coming out of 2008, 2009. But this situation is different because commodity prices have collapsed so dramatically. China's not able to rescue them. QE is not able to rescue them. And so every single central bank has jumped in with the same QE playbook, whereas it was just a handful in the past crisis. And we just don't know how this is going to work out. We have this assumption that we will have no inflation at the end of it. But wow, who knows? Thanks, Greg. I think you raise a real valid point. And what pops up first in my mind is really the amount of testing that could be done to determine who already had the virus and didn't even know it. And if it turns out that the virus was here in the U.S. much earlier than we 
expected, we might already have some herd immunity starting up. Actually knowing that I think is critical. Also knowing who is the most vulnerable to the disease aside from the obvious elderly people that have gotten hit especially hard in the assisted care homes, that might be critical in bringing a sense of calm for people going back to their more normal daily behaviors. The other part of it for me is that the level of economic destruction versus the amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus somewhat depends on how long this continues for, but there are also companies and industries that are going to be big winners in this. And there are some that are big losers and may never come back or take a very, very long time to come back. Margaret, I agree with you. I think there are going to be some big winners here, but I think there's also going to be a lot more big losers here. And and so far, our conversation to this point is centered around the degree to which the economy is able to be successfully reopened. And we're defining successfully reopened as we have manageable second or third waves that don't prevent lockdown coming again. And while that's extremely important, I think an equally important piece is how willing people are to re-engage the economy. And that's almost where I'm more worried. And we talked a bit about Germany before and Germany being on the early side of opening things. Stephen, it seems to be going well in Germany, except you're also seeing storylines about people not really re-engaging the economy. Yes, I think that's right. But I think we also need to keep in mind that Germany's experience with coronavirus is unique. It's had a very flat curve because it was able to test people very quickly. It was better at controlling and suppressing the spread of the virus. And it's had more success rates with people in critical care beds. I think that's the bottom line. But when we move to other countries, the situation could be much different. Health systems are are perhaps not as good at coping. And some of these countries in question don't have as big manufacturing bases. That's more of an issue with the testing than perhaps reopening, but it's just something to keep in mind. I think one of the uh, common themes here, really stringing through everybody's comments so far, is just the general uncertainty uh, around the outlook and how things are going to turn out, how we're going to reopen, what the reopening is going to look like, every jurisdiction looking a little bit differently, having different timing, just general uncertainty. And despite that, you have what Ian mentioned, the bid to risk assets generally. And I guess how those two fit together, I think what it comes back to for me is central banks and their willingness to buy not quite any asset, but pretty darn close uh, at this point. And, and you're seeing that reflected, I think, in, in risk assets. And you can see that in sovereign bonds as well. And the fact that bond yields are where they are throughout the developed world, sub 1% out to 10 years for the most part, and even long bonds, 30-year bonds staying extremely well bid and having extremely low yields. And really no no fear at this point of inflation or debt sustainability or anything like that. For now, it's just central banks supporting things. And we'll see how the economic outlook and how, how the backdrop turns out and whether all this is sustainable. It's a great point, Ben. And I think that the central bank response across the world has obviously been the key inflection point in financial markets response to the coronavirus so far. But at some point in time, the economy has to get up and walk on its own. And that's where I get concerned. The majority of stimulus that's come through central banks, at least in the United States, has been loans. There has been some grants and and forgivable loans, but the main programs are going to be loans and that money has to be paid back. And if the stimulus that's been provided so far just gets the economy through to, say, June, when everyone's expecting economies to reopen and there to be normal or close to normal activity, if that doesn't happen, then you just have businesses that are now more leveraged with more loans that theoretically need to pay them back off of future earnings. And 
And I don't know that the economy is going to go back to the way it was before, let alone deliver on this pent-up demand that would help companies pay back the increase in leverage incurred in the past couple months. And Dan, to your point about leverage, it's not just the Fed programs that are encouraging companies to take on debt. We've had primary market issuance in investment-grade corporates of nearly $300 billion in April alone. March was another record of $260 billion. So we have leverage both from these Fed programs directly, but also just in the private markets. And I think to your point, it's going to be interesting to see when the economy does reopen to one that is in a recession, how are these corporates going to sustain those debt levels? Danny and Dan, you raise great points. We've basically had a fundamental change in the structure of balance sheets through this COVID pandemic period. And it's going to take some time to dig out of that. And some of that's clearly not necessarily being priced into the marketplace. Well, one of the big things that I took away from the last financial crisis was that the asset classes that the Fed gets involved with, they're not going to step away from anytime soon. So when we talk about how balance sheets have been materially changed as a result of the pandemic, and Margaret, as you pointed out earlier, the economy overall is going to be materially different once the lockdown is over, what strikes me is that the FOMC is going to be engaged in bond buying for a very long time. And recall that after the last financial crisis, there were calls for when will the Fed sell mortgages? I wouldn't be surprised to see a comparable chorus come out about when will the Fed sell the corporate bonds that they've been buying? When will the Fed step away from the muni market, etc.? I might be a bit early on this call, but I would say that the best that we could hope for is what we saw following 2009-2010 is the Fed eventually scales back their purchases in a variety of different assets, holds their balances the same, rolling them over, and eventually tries to shrink the balance sheet. But that's not going to be an issue for 2021, 2022. We'll be well beyond, I would assume, 2025 before this even becomes a real conversation. In terms of comparing this experience to the prior crisis, one major point of difference is just simply one of scale around Treasury issuance and the Fed's QE programs. Based off of the most recent information we have, Relatively reasonable assumptions imply net bill issuance in Q2 of this year, something on the order of $2.5 trillion to $3 trillion. Even with the Fed buying huge amounts of treasuries over the past several weeks, they're not going to be able to fill that gap. So what I mean by this is the market will be tasked with taking down a trillion dollars plus of treasuries, largely front-end focused, even after we strip away the Fed's purchases. We haven't really seen this game fully play out, but one thing that is a bit comforting is the bill market and repo have been at least relatively tame thus far when digesting these rather unprecedented figures. That's a great point, John. At this point, that's a global story. It's not just a U.S. story. Canada as well very massive increase in issuance, both in bonds and in T-bills. The Bank of Canada stepping in there as well, just like the Fed, facilitating that issuance to some extent. And they'll do the same thing in the provincial market with their uh, buying program there starting on May 7th. But this really is a global issue. And how long are central banks going to step in to facilitate the size of deficits? And on the flip side, if central banks continue, does that just encourage more and more borrowing even after this phase, this wave of COVID is over and things return to whatever normal will be on the other side. 
Yeah, but I think the involvement of governments and central banks around the world is having a perhaps distortive impact on the quote-unquote recovery in risk assets, whether you're looking at equities or even credit spreads. They all hit their lows on the day that the Fed came in with their multi-trillion dollar rescue package. But even reflecting that, I think we can all agree that there's a lot of uncertainty ahead and risk assets, particularly equities, don't seem to me at least to be pricing in that amount of uncertainty. It seems to me that everything's looking past a rosy recovery that might happen, but it also might not. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of uncertainty being priced in. And and that says to me that perhaps the equity market's telling us that, okay, things might turn out okay, but if they don't, then I know the government has our back anyways. That helps increase risk appetite if you think that the downside is just more bailouts from the government. I'm just not sure if there is a limit to government slash central bank involvement or if we do see another leg down upon a second wave or something like that, that governments can come come back in and do more. I would argue that that's exactly what is going on in risk assets is we are seeing the market respond to essentially the Powell put that's been underwritten and executed upon for the period when the economy is locked down. Now, we all know the narrative, the Fed wants to keep every business and establishment that they possibly can involved with the potential to reopen once the lockdowns are over. But what happens, and to your point, and I think that this is the biggest test of central bank involvement, what happens in that second wave when we start to see an increase in real bankruptcies and real business closures simply because their business models are no longer viable? Is the Fed going to step in and continue to bail out industries and businesses that don't have a role in the new world? I would say probably not, but that's different than truly seeing a central bank step away from a systemic problem. So idiosyncratic bankruptcies and specific industries that get hit harder than others, I think, follow intuitively. But that doesn't necessarily mean that equities are going to retest the lows that we saw in mid-March. One major difference this time around versus the last financial crisis is that the Fed is buying an unlimited amount right out of the gates. And to me, that basically means that Treasury has the ability to do whatever it takes when the Fed will take on the debt that they're issuing. So I think that if there is a second wave, we will see the government come in with more stimulus and the Fed continue to purchase whatever's necessary in order for the financial markets to function properly. And that backdrop, I think, is a little bit different and into the point of you know who ends up failing in the new world because they're no longer relevant. I tend to agree with Ian. You know, at the beginning of this, we talked about the Fed and Treasury wanting to freeze everybody in place and a couple of months down the line just reopen as if it had never existed. And we know now that's not the case. Some behaviors will be permanently changed on the back of this. I also think it's important to note that some of these companies that are in critical shape here can't fail because they are of interest to national security. For example, how can the U.S. not have an airline manufacturer or auto companies or energy companies? And so some of these will continue to be bailed out as we move our way through this situation. Whereas on the other hand, the business models will have been permanently changed and there will be destruction at the end of the day. 
just shifting gears back to the international picture and, and over to Europe, I think all of these issues may well be of a more pressing nature for the Eurozone over the next year or two than perhaps even in the US. And the reason for that is because all the things that that you've all just been talking about on the podcast, namely bankruptcies, moral hazard, bailouts, all of these things are issues which have caused significant disruption in, in Europe before. So for example, if the European Central Bank as one European institution were to come in and provide an unlimited backstop for the system, that degree of moral hazard will annoy some countries in the bloc. But equally, if the ECB does less, that will also create frictions within the bloc because weaker member states will need that support that they're not getting. I think you raise a good point, Stephen, and clearly we're watching the situation in Europe and how it differs here. We do have the states deciding themselves when it's most appropriate for them to do their risk-based reopenings. People seem eager to get moving in some of the places that haven't been as exposed. So what do we need to get the economy up and running and move forward successfully? I mean, I think we need, as a society, we need a change in psychology, basically, a change in attitude towards the virus, or as Ben says in one word, confidence. That's what it's going to take. I mean, them opening the businesses doesn't mean anyone's going to go back. There could be fear of catching the virus and passing it on to loved ones. Even if you're of low risk, it could be that you infect someone of high risk and then you feel somewhat guilty for that. There needs to be a change of mentality around it. So people need to be comfortable with A, did they already have it? B, if they had it, they're not going to get it again. C, if they're going to get it again, proper treatment is available. And D, we need more information on how COVID spreads and if the face masks and social distancing are adequate to protect people. One of the things that I've been thinking about in terms of what would it take to get us to a economy that is reopened and not reopened in a way filled with anxiety and apprehension about getting back out into the world. And part of it might not be a true recasting of people's expectations and understandings of COVID-19, but rather it could simply be part of what has already transpired over the course of the last five to six weeks, and that is, to a large extent, we have a understanding about who's vulnerable in society, and those who don't necessarily fall into those categories are continuing to go forward with the shelter-in-place orders and will be wearing masks in public, etc. But there's a point where that implied altruism of doing good for society as a whole is overshadowed by the economic realities of needing to get back to work. And I think that that's going to be one of the underlying tensions that we see play out over the course of the summer. Thank you, Ian. The bottom line is that people need more clarity on the risks and if they can re-enter the economy and workforce and still be protected. Thank you to everyone on our strategy team for your thoughts today. And thank you, everyone listening to these podcasts. As always, please keep the questions and comments coming in. All feedback is welcome. And most of all, stay safe. This concludes Macro Horizons episode 15. If you open it, will they come? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.karens at bmo.com. 
You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.